Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this terrific Law Week event on how we reform our law. I'm Lynn Holte, and I'm the Executive Director of the Victoria Law Foundation. And before I introduce you to our illustrious speakers this morning, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country wherever you are joining us today, wherever that is. This morning, I'm on Bunwarang country, and I pay my respects to their elders and to all the generations of First Nations people acknowledging that these lands were never ceded. At the VLF, we recognise the impact of colonisation, its legacy of injustice, and the marginalisation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We believe that acknowledging the past is an essential step in building a better and more equitable future. We are genuinely committed to making a contribution to a better justice system for all of us, especially those vulnerable and in most need. So today's webinar is an absolutely fascinating one on how we update our law. Today our presenters are Fiona Patton, who is member for Northern Metropolitan Region, the Victorian Parliament's Legislative Council, and the Honourable Anthony North QC, Chairperson of the Victorian Law Reform Commission, otherwise known as the VLRC. Before he took the reins at the VLRC, Tony was a judge in the Federal Court of Australia, also in the Supreme Court of the ACT. Became a barrister in 1976 and was made Queen's Counsel in 1989. And he was appointed as chair of the VLRC in 2019. Fiona Patton was elected to the Victorian Upper House in 2014 and then re-elected in 2018. And since then, she's been chair of the Legal and Social Issues Committee this is the very first time in Victorian history that an independent Member of Parliament has held that position. Fiona's reform agenda you may well be familiar with. It's uh, covered legalising voluntary assisted dying, reforming abortion laws, decriminalising sex work, introducing medically supervised injecting centres and legalising ride sharing. So just a, a few of the more recent issues that Fiona has been involved with. And she's initiated and guided all these through the parliament and onto the statute. So it's a very successful record of law reform. So in this session, Fiona and Anthony will discuss the reasons for law reform. We'll, we'll have a, a, a conversation about their different perspectives and different approaches that their organisations take to law reform. So welcome very, very warmly to Tony North and Fiona Patton. Good morning. Great to have you both with us. But Fiona, for you, from a parliamentary point of view, tell me what you mean by law reform and why we need it. Look, I certainly, I mean, I think, think law reform is probably the reason for, for independence specifically to get elected. That's what drives many of us is that desire to change the legislation. But I think, you know, Lynn, I think you captured it really well. I mean, it is about changing attitudes to certain issues and about the law staying abreast of those community attitudes and being and, and, and changing as a result. Uh, it also, I think, you know, when we, you know, it's it's in line with when we learn when we have more evidence. So, you know, when when we we recognise and look at things in a different way than we may have done in decades previously, and you know, sometimes it's also not necessarily about changing a law, but actually removing a law. And I think you know we can talk about this maybe further on. But if you look at something like the decriminalisation of sex work, that was actually. The reform there was repealing legislation and that that's now an ongoing process and 
And I think, you know, in my time, I, I always wonder, we seem to make so many laws each week in Parliament. Shouldn't there be a time when we actually do look at, um, at repealing legislation a, as a form of significant reform? Very good point. I think there's some weird and wonderful laws that are still on the books in Victoria, which is probably conversation for another time. Tony, would you add to that in terms of how yeah. you define law reform? Yeah, I think that uh, law reform really um, is spurred by all manner of changes. I mean, we have technological changes in society. Mm. So all of a sudden we have smartphones where people can cyberstalk. We don't have laws about cyber stalking. We need laws about cyber stalking. So, and you know, in a in a land of um, rapidly changing technology, you can see where the law has just got to keep pace. We we had a uh, reference on contempt of court, and the new sort of social media environment creates a whole lot of new questions. So, I'd say technological change is one of the reasons why you need law reform. You've got societal changes. You know, we now view, for instance, discrimination in a way which we didn't do 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, in my lifetime, I've seen, for instance, the way the world looks at women and women in work and women in professions. And so all of a sudden, the law needs to recognise and promote those new social outlooks. Then there are there are changes in social values. I mean, rape in marriage was never regarded as something that should be criminalised. Now we recognise that, of course, rape, however it occurs, wherever it occurs, is something that should not be permitted and the law should take a stand. So social values change. Then we, in recent times in particular, in the Law Reform Commission have seen reform which has been spurred by individual cases. Um, We're at the moment in the midst of looking at the laws about stalking, which came out of the dreadful murder of Celeste Mano. And the government responded to those awful circumstances by looking at an area of the law which was thought to contribute to those situations. We also recently released a report on grabbing and dragging as an offence. And that, again, you might remember, arose from an incident in town where a young woman was jumped upon randomly in the city. And the person that did it was acquitted of the offence of assault with intent to commit a sexual offence. And so the government asked us to look and see whether there was a gap in the law, whether you know, those circumstances should give rise to criminal liability. And I think lastly, I'd say that reform um, arises where sometimes the law just becomes so difficult and complicated that you need a statute to cut through the complexity and bring a little simplicity. Mm. So that um, some years ago, we looked at the directions which judges give to juries and they'd become so, so cumbersome that we had a lot of appeals going to the Court of Appeal complaining that judges hadn't properly directed the jury. And consequently, we provided a report to the Attorney General and legislation was passed to simplify that process. And I've been told that as a result, there have been virtually no appeals since then 
on complicated jury direction. So another area of reform, another spur to reform is reducing complication. I think those are the areas which I, I would pinpoint as being why we need reform and um, why in the past we've actually you know, produced reports which have resulted in legislative change as a result. Well, let, let's talk now about how both your uh, organisations approach this. But Fiona, tell me about how does law reform happen in the parliamentary context? Yeah, well, it, it, it generally happens on the floor and, and it generally happens through legislation being introduced by the government of the day. In rare instances, we see that reform occur through private members' bills. Um, and I've certainly been responsible for a number of private members' bills in my time. But then more specifically to, to committees, we have a range of committees. So we have joint investigatory committees, which by their very name, they're joint. So there are members from both houses. Uh, they, they quite often have more of an oversight capacity. So think the Scrutiny of Acts and Regulations Committee or the Public Accounts and Estimates Committee. Um, so they take on a, yeah, I'd say more of an oversight area. Then we have the standing committees which are appointed for generally for, for the term, for, for the four-year term. And that's and, and a lot of those are long-standing. So the, the Legal and Social Issues Committee, which I chair, has been around for, for decades and been has done a number of legislation. So from there, we the committee receives, the committee starts its investigatory work when it receives a reference. And that reference will come to us vibe generally for my for mine which is the the legislative council that will come from a, a government reference so the government could refer an issue to us it more often comes from a parliamentary reference so there'll be a debate in the house about an, an issue it'll it may come as a as a motion on the on the pa notice paper or um, as a piece of legislation or amendment legislation and the and the parliament will agree that the, um, that this should be referred to a committee for further investigation. And then in other circumstances, we may well um, self-refer. So my committee has, has self-referred um, on a handful of occasions where, you know, in the most, in, in the most recent time, we self-referred an investigation on, a, on an issue of a closure of a food manufacturing company that we thought there was still some questions to be asked about it. And in actual fact, we reopened that when more questions um, were, were raised with us. But those are the, the main avenues for, um, for us. And then the final avenue, which would be a bill referral. So sometimes it'll be a very short and sharp piece of work that, that, that there'll be a piece of legislation on the floor. There'll be a number of amendments that might be being um, debated around. And there will be an agreement from the parliament that this should just go and that the committee should have some public hearings and, and, and certainly investigate the specific issues of that bill separately and then bring back a report either with findings or, or with recommendations back to the parliament. There's some interesting parallels here, Tony. I mean, you both have, uh, like, like Fiona's committee, uh, references from others and self-initiated uh, investigations. But... Tell us more about how the VNRC gets its work and does it. Yes. Well, the, the source of our work is much less complicated 
than Fiona's. We have enough trauma, but our trauma is really directed to the Attorney General because she is our major source of work. So our legislation says that we, we are activated when the Attorney General gives us a reference. So that's simple. It's simple, at least on the face of it. Then, and that would constitute about 80% of our work. Mm. We have a, like a self-referral power. We call them community law reform projects, and they arise as a result of a provision in our Act, which allows us to make reports on matters, but where they would claim less of the resources of the Commission. So they tend to be smaller. They're about 20% of our work, and they're ones that reflect a real sort of widespread community concern. The last one we did was on trees, tree dispute and tree disputes in the community. And it was amazing just how widespread, you know, debates about trees, um, you know, your tree is filling up my gutters with leaves or your branch has fallen onto my shed um, type of things. At the moment, our current um, community law reform project is a really interesting one. It's about whether blind or deaf people should serve on juries because they don't at the moment. And it's an amazing project because you, want, you really wonder why not. Um, and, and we've discovered some amazing things like that women have only been able to serve on juries since 1975. Yeah. And some of the things that were said about, you know, how appropriate that was in the debates is really quite today quite mind-blowing. One thing I should say about the attorney-generated um, references and, and the, um, the current one that we're about to finish off is the stalking one, mm. um, but interestingly it is only through the attorney that we get our references and for instance um, in the UK references can come from other ministers and other departments and you know query whether that's a good idea because at the moment we've got the one channel and yeah. all sorts of different models that you can use as the source but that's the one that mm. we have and so consequently we have a, a very close relationship with the attorney general and you know it's very constructive on both sides because mm. you know she depends on us for our work and we certainly depend on her for our work. I think, Tony, I think there's been some attempts and I can't recall now whether they were successful, where there's been a motion in the House to, for the a motion to the Attorney General to refer something to the, the Law Reform Commission. Has, are you aware that that's happened in your time? Um, I don't think it has happened no. in my time, and but it's certainly it's certainly a way it could happen, and it then becomes very parallel to the way you get your work. But right. you know, we we really only start to sort of get an interest when the attorney knocks on our door and says, "Right now, go." We, yeah. um, I, I suppose, this raises a, an issue of great importance, and it is perhaps a differentiation between the parliamentary committee process and the law reform commission mm. we we are independent of government so once the attorney presses the button and says go ahead then government has no influence on where the project goes so we could 
come out with um, you know, results which government doesn't like mm. because we think it's the proper result from a law reform point of view. Yeah. Um, and we are mandated under our Act of Parliament to act in that independent way. We're a separate statutory body. Uh, and once we're given the project, we can't be told what to do. So, and that's a really important thing. And it's something that thankfully government respects. There's never been an attempt in my time to influence and not to say we don't interact with government all the time because we need to know how they're thinking and what they're doing and mm. what their attitudes are and we consult. Mm. But we're not in any way swayed by what political outcome government wants. Mm. Which brings us very neatly to mm. who, who is involved in this process. Mm. So, Fiona, your committee is made up of parliamentarians and they have political interests mm. which they bring to bear. But you also engage in, in consultation processes with the public. So you are sort of uh, you know, active in trying to capture you know, a broader yeah. sensibility. But in the end, is it fundamentally a political process? It can be, Lynn. It can be. And I think it's, um, and it's an interesting note, just thinking about this when while Tony was speaking, when you look at some of those, in, some of those committees that I mentioned, particularly those that are largely oversight committees, um, in Victoria, they are dominated by government members. So they will have a, a government chair and they will, and the government will have the numbers on those committees. So and I think, you know, when you're thinking about the scrutiny of acts and regulations that the government is presenting to the parliament to have, you know, in that committee is actually dominated by the government, um, you wonder about the, the, the ability of those of, of that committee to, to, respond, um, to respond in any, I think, clear and, and independent way to governments. Well, I was just going to ask, so there, there is no requirement for your committee, for example, to have a certain number of representatives from different parties? Yes, so that does get set out. So in my, so, but in, in the, the standing committees, particularly in the upper house, they have to be sort of proportional to the upper house. Now, and that's the same in the lower house, but generally the government has such a um, majority in the lower house, that means that, that those committees are, are government dominated. In, in our house, because the government doesn't have a majority in our house, they don't have a majority on any of those, those committees. Uh, they, they may chair some of those committees. Uh, in fact, I, they, they do, they chair all of the committees with the exception of the Legal and Social Issues Committee, which, which I chair, but the government doesn't have the number, the, the majority on any of those committees, mm. which does, I think, enable a much more robust conversation for, for me, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to get through some, some law reform that, you know, I haven't been able to be successful because while the government doesn't support it, neither does the opposition support it. So um, I, I, get, I get knocked out on both sides. But yes, so our committees are made up uh, so that they are reflective of the makeup of the Legislative Council. But as you say, we then go out very broadly um, and, and try and capture the views of the community and those with, with, with expertise in, in whatever the subject matter is. We'll go into more detail about the process in just a moment, but Tony, how is the VLRC made up and how do you ensure that you do have uh, people, individuals who hold that independence dear as much as the 
the uh, legislation requires it. Yeah. I think I should start by underlining the fact that once we produce a report, it goes to the attorney. She, in the case of references coming from her, is required to table it in Parliament. But what is done with the report, what is done with our recommendations, is entirely up to government. We have nothing to do with that. And so in the end, you can say, oh, well, you talk about being independent. That's all very fine. In the end, it's a political issue about whether your recommendations are accepted. And that's true and important to bear that in mind for another point I'll make in a minute. Mm. But the people who constitute the commission, are eight commissioners plus myself, and the eight commissioners are not appointed because they're politicians. On the contrary, there are no politicians. Mm. They are people who are, well, at the moment, all passionate about law reform, which is a marvellous thing to see. Um, but they are people who've got expertise in areas which are likely to be the subject of references, but who have achieved a level of, of skill in their area, most are lawyers, in fact, all are lawyers, I think, um, who can bring independent, rational thinking to these questions. So we have someone who worked for the Office of Public Prosecutions for a long time, someone who works for legal aid, the Children's Commissioner, a barrister in private practice, a retired judge. They're the, the, the type of people. And they're, of course, supported by the research staff. What I wanted, the point I wanted to get back to is this. There you've got that group of eight plus me, which is nine. They look at every report and scrutinise it virtually line by line. And they bring this independent mind to it. Then it goes off into the political process. And what I wanted to say was that Victoria is probably paramount in Australia with having a really robust law reform commission. Well-funded, never funded enough, of course, <laughs> um, <laughs> but well-supported um, and with a great reputation for doing fine work. And I think it's a mark of a really mature government that in 2000, when Rob Hulls introduced the legislation creating the Law Reform Commission, the government was, was mature enough to say, well, we're prepared to listen to independent minds on these questions. And a lot of governments won't do that. And a lot of governments have either poultry law reform commissions or they sideline them and give them a sort of a, a, you know, a bit of a role on the side. We are a force to be reckoned with because once the reports are made and they're tabled, they become a matter of public debate. Mm -hmm. And um, I think as Victorians, we, you know, can be very proud of the fact that there is this body independent in the way I've described. Ultimately, politicians make the call, but they're prepared to have a body scrutinise the laws and make controversial decisions. Yeah, sure, it's all up to the attorney to give us the work, but, you know, you can't ask for everything. We can't go out and just sort of blithely, um, for instance, promote commercial surrogacy or look into commercial surrogacy or things that we think might be a good idea, criminalising drugs altogether. You know, we have those restraints which are brought as a result of the political process. But we have a voice and a voice which, and we'll get to this in a minute, 
a voice which actually picks up the public voice because we talk to the public. And so through this independent body, the public can have a real say about what the laws should be. So I think from, from my experience in, in the parliament, you know, the, the, the reports that the Law Reform Commission um, produces carry great weight. Mm. And there will be times in conversations I've had with government members in, uh, around, you know, trying to encourage or advocate for a referral to the Law Reform Commission. And quite often they're, they're nervous about it because they actually feel, you know, it, it seems there is there isn't a genuine sense of obligation um, to, to act on a Law Reform Commission recommendation. You know, they, it, it may not eventuate in, in, in every circumstance, but they feel the pressure when the Law Reform Commission makes those recommendations. I think that's also underlined by the fact that they in Victoria in recent times have appointed retired judges to lead. And I noticed that yesterday in New South Wales, the Attorney General appointed the just retired Chief Justice of New South Wales as the head of their Law Reform Commission. So uh, not that I want to sort of blow the trumpet of retired judges, but I mean, we have had a lifetime of experience of independent thinking about laws and I think it would be a brave government who simply just dismissed um, an organisation run in that way um, without sort of due consideration. Um, there's so much in this, and I'm fascinated about the, both the parallels and the distinctions yeah. between, between the two approaches. But, but Fiona, can you give us a quick sketch of your process? I mean, what we hear is, uh, from what you've said already, is that obviously there is discussion amongst the members of the committee, and then there is a commitment in many circumstances, as I understand it, to engaging the public in, in further discussions. But what does a normal process yeah. look like if there is so, such a thing? Yeah, so in brief, we once we've received that reference, so once that re reference has been made to, to the committee, we, we have a committee secretariat, which is hugely underfunded um, and really very, very stretched and it's something that I would love to change. But, but that committee secretary, we then, as the chair, we then scope, sort of scope it out. We, we look at where the stakeholders may be for this. We look at any other reports. So we do that back, background research. We start that process. And then you're absolutely right. We open it up to, to public submissions. So uh, it would be very rare. And I might touch on, on a particular inquiry that we're doing right now, which may break that protocol, but we open it up to public submissions. We then, and we set a period of time for that. We will then, whenever possible, have public hearings so people can attend and we can have those, there can be those conversations and draw, to draw out further evidence. In recent times, we've really tried to also set up surveys and easier ways for the public to contribute to the issues without having to write a full submission. So doing, surveys or smaller response smaller question and answer types types of um of documents once and then we hold the public hearings then we draft um and from that we collect that evidence we will draft a report um and then the committee will deliberate over that report and we will often vote on any findings or recommendations that that we will make on that you know sometimes we're given six weeks to do that 
sometimes we're given 18 months to do that <laughs> and so that yeah and and sometimes we've got three inquiries going i mean my my committee since 2000 since the beginning of 2019 um we are on our 10th inquiry now <laughs> um and that included just a little thing like you know inquiry into the criminal justice system so it's a very busy dynamic group mm. uh, and we do we do actually rely very much on our stakeholders community organizations expert organizations to really um, to to assist us in the process. I'm going to come to Tony in just a sec, but before we leave you, I need to know what your anomaly is. What what what, what is the inquiry that may blow all of this out of the water? We have just we had a reference to um, investigate extremism. Now that yes, so there is there is a level of um, well, for want of a better word, there's a level of nervousness about this. Um, we've also you know, we are, are, and and quite rightly, the first place and put a call that we went to with this was the police um, to seek feedback on the on the terms of reference, and certainly they have given us that feedback. So we will be looking at how how we manage that submission, how that how we manage submissions, how we manage the process of that, and I suspect yes, it it may not have the same. Um, Publicity and um, and and openness uh, due due to the, the the very serious nature of of the inquiry. So so that one may may occur a little bit behind closed doors. Next week, at the moment, just as another example, we're um, we're holding an inquiry into the impact of child on children of parental incarceration. Now, this is just uh, it is I'm, it's a, an incredible inquiry. But next week we'll be holding an open mic night where people who have had that experience can provide us with evidence, can tell their stories, can talk about their lived experience, but we'll be at, we'll do it in ways that they're comfortable with because of the stigma and discrimination and, tra and trauma involved. Um, some of them might do that all in camera. Some might just like to have their voices heard. Some might like to tell the world. So we'll be very sensitive to that and, um, and so that we can hear from as many people as possible. Mm. I think across the board through Royal Commissions as well, we've become a lot more diverse and innovative in the ways in which we, we, uh, we garner public uh, uh, sensibilities around these issues. Tony, tell us, you know, uh, the life of, uh, of a VLRC inquiry, uh, you know, in broad terms. Yeah, well, there's so much. I mean, we could really go on for hours about what Fiona has just discussed, I'm fascinated by the idea of the inquiry about extremism, but it does point up one of the issues that we face in a federal um, a country yes. with a federal system, yeah. because the subject of extremism, of course, is something that the federal government um, has a, a great um, sort of um, involvement in. Mm. And, and legislation over. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it sometimes is a, is a difficulty. I mean, in all the whole sort of cyber world um, issues that we run across all, in almost every reference, um, there's this problem about, well, yes, the answer to it is an international treaty to get the, <laughs> you know, the makers of the porn in Romania or where, wherever they are, mm. which Victoria on its own can't really do. And so, um, you know, it raises very interesting questions about how 
law reform commissions could perhaps um, collaborate in a federal system. But anyway, on the topic, um, Lynn, that you raised, our process, I can pinpoint, I think, the major difference, because other than that, I think we run on fairly similar lines. The major difference is we do not have public hearings. Um, now, it's just not part of our statutory um, setup. Um, I, I've never contemplated the question about whether we could. I, I expect that we probably, if we could, uh, if we wanted to, we probably could. But it isn't the, the way we've conducted the inquiries to date. So what we do, um, just as Fiona said, the first, well, our first step is to engage a team because our staff are mostly, not all, but they're mostly skilled researchers in government policy area. And it's a major occupational area, which a lot of people don't know about, but they're very many skilled people, mostly young mums with babies at home or young kids at home, um, because it's a very flexible way of working, you know, very easy to work from home. So we engage the team for the project. And most of our staff, as I said, are engaged for the project. We then scope the inquiry, much as Fiona has said, we look at you know, what it involves, who should we talk to? And as a result of that initial scoping, produce a consultation paper, which is for public release, which tries to define the questions that we're going to address. Once that's done, we call for submissions and they are submissions in writing. At the same time, we conduct face-to-face -face consultations with major stakeholders. As a result then of accumulating all that material, the research teams go to work and produce the report. Um, what Fiona said about how the consultations happen is really important because, for instance, you can imagine in the sex offences inquiry, we dealt with a lot of people who were terribly damaged, some who, as you said, Fiona, wanted to talk, others that wanted to be dealt with in a different way. One of our commissioners is Jennifer Cote, who was a commissioner on the Institutional Child Abuse Royal Commission, which really defined ways of dealing with victims. So we have engaged with all those processes and um, have become a little accomplished in, in how to make people feel comfortable um, and therefore, you know, get the best out of them. Similarly, with Fiona, we have used sort of creative surveys. There's um, Victoria has an Engage Victoria website, which um, allows people to express views on particular subjects. And we've done that. And um, we also try and generate interest by media engagement. So engagement with journalists about what's happening, you know, both ABC type um, programs and also commercial um, TV. Um, and uh, yeah, that's our process. And we normally take not six weeks, we take 18 <laughs> months and there's a constant tension between us and government about well, can you do it quicker? And we've learned that you really can't. So on a big project like, um, like the um, sexual offences uh, inquiry, we would have a team of perhaps 
six researchers. That's a big team for us. We've talked about sort of inviting people to, to engage with the process and to make submissions and to voluntarily uh, share their, their insights. When you need to, can you press people to show up and to, to give you information, Fiona? Do you have any special powers? Uh, we can, yeah, we certainly have the right to subpoena people and subpoena information. Um, and it's generally, you know, just just putting the word subpoena in, into a sentence, into an email has, has the sufficient effect uh, of bringing people to the table. Uh, but we, we have subpoenaed information and certainly, as I mentioned in that, um, I cook foods in the um, inquiry into that food manufacturer, food producer, uh, a number of documents were subpoenaed um, during that process and a couple of people were issued with subpoenas to appear. And, and you know, and then, because on the flip side, sometimes people actually um, feel uh, more vindicated or, or more wit or able to speak freely have if they have been subpoenaed. Um, so it's a bit, bit interesting. So yes, we, we can subpoena um, uh, information. Where we really struggle, um, and it is we have the power to ask the government to provide information. And so if you look at, um, for example, the housing, in, the homelessness inquiry, uh, we were very keen to get data from the, the department on this, and we sent out a series of surveys, but we don't have the power to make them do it. I mean, they're, they're supposed to do it, but there's no real ramification uh, if they don't. So um, we, we, we're sort of quite often in a constant state of um, uh, friction with, with departments about providing us with the information that we need. Sometimes it happens easily and it's very straightforward and it's and the department is very helpful in in other cases it's um it, it can be a lot more difficult mm. tony what's what's the situation of the vlrc yeah this is another big distinction between us we don't have the power to subpoena um and it may be that that's because of sort of slightly different functions i mean slightly different sources of our references we perhaps don't get into territory where that's needed. Yeah. Um, but what I can say is as a matter of practice, we have very close working relations with the people that we often talk to, like the police, the Office of Public Prosecutions, the courts. And we haven't really ever encountered um, resistance. I think there is a an understanding that we're doing a job where we need their input and they will give it quite freely. We've had in recent times a problem during COVID where a lot of government agencies are very pressed, you know, that they've, they've got COVID-related duties which have taken their policy people away uh, from cooperating with us. And so we've worked through that um, quite tensely at times, I have to say, but, um, but only in a couple of cases have we got to a stage where we've said, and this is sort of our ultimate weapon, um, I'm sure you've used it too, Fiona, but the ultimate weapon for us is to say, well, look, you say you can't 
provide us with information. We need that information. If you can't provide it, we will have to record in our report that you haven't. And, you know, we've been hampered in that respect. Now, you're going to have to wear what comes out of that. Sometimes they've said, well, good on you, we will. And other mm -hmm. times they've said, oh, well, okay, well, in that case, we'll try a little bit harder. Um, but, yeah. you know, I've got sympathy with those agencies that, you know, I mean, government is, is saying, well, is directing all agencies like us that we have to mm -hmm. cut our costs. And so the agencies with whom we regularly consult um, have to tighten their belt. And, and sometimes it's in the areas where um, there's staff that we would cooperate with. But as I say, we've not, we've never, never actually yet, despite some tense times, actually used that line in the report. Might be that we will shortly, but... Um, <laughs> There's a story. There's a great old journo trick, Tony, where you leave the empty chair uh, to indicate the person who has not shown up. And to mm. be honest, I was intrigued that that hasn't been used yet in this election campaign. But yes. <laughs> um, it, it's certainly an oldie but a goodie. And, and yeah. making it plain that someone has not um, delivered can be profoundly mm. uh, embarrassing to, to but, them. Uh, of course, we... I should say, we, I mean, we put the genuine argument that it's in your interest as well yes. as ours to talk exactly. because, I mean, yeah. we, we often come out with recommendations which bolster their case with mm. government to mm. actually, you know, move something along. So That's we right. do use, it's the old carrot and the stick. Yes. But, uh, Better yeah, and, 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 we're, and we're very much the same, you know, some which is why sometimes we get great cooperation mm. uh, with government agencies and, and departments and, and, and other times not so much. But I, and I take the point around um, COVID uh, having, having an impact and certainly, you know, when we were, the inquiries that we've been doing have been really in the Department of Housing and Health and the Department and the Health Department. So mm. yes, if there, if there was two departments that became very stretched, during COVID, it would have yeah. been those particular yes, um, parts of the organisation. Let's let's cut to the chase. What happens when the rubber hits the road? Tony, you have said already that the VLRC delivers its its uh, reports and has uh, no further responsibility in terms of, of uh, leverage around the application or implementation of, of recommendations. And at that point, you you have to sort of tie the bow and walk away. Is that right? You don't have any uh, uh, power beyond the power of, of public opinion and a, and a publicly you know, tabled document to, to press the government to do anything. Yeah, that's exactly right, Lynn. I mean, once we deliver the report to the attorney, um, it's completely within the political sphere. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, our rate of implementation of our recommendations is very high. We we claim seventy five to eighty percent. I never want to be cross examined on that, but, um, <laughs> and it's remarkably similar to the claims for law reform commissions the world over. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, you know, I was recently in London and speaking with the head of their law commission, and he was explaining how the the position there is different that. 
they actually involve themselves in implementation. For a start, what they do in their reports is that they provide a draft of the legislation that they're recommending. Wow. We don't, we don't wow. do that. Yeah. Secondly, they make themselves available to government to work through how the implementation should work. And as he put it, he said, it's best for us who've developed an expertise mm. in the area to do it rather than to rely on a bureaucrat who hasn't had the background. Now, we don't do that. Um, um, it, it's just an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, it's, it'd be a question of resources, I guess, for us. But it also, to me, trenches a little bit on the idea of independence. I, I do rather respect the idea that once we've signed off on a report and given it over, that that's then a question for government and that we shouldn't really be involved in implementation because it brings us rather too close to the process of, of government. Mm -hmm. Well, Fiona, what about the in-house experience? You are the government or, you know, you yeah. are part of the process um, in terms of, of passing any, any, but what happens to your report? So under, under the Committees Act and under the Parliament Act, uh, the government is to respond to committee reports within six months of them being tabled in the Parliament. But as I have discovered just in the last week or so, um, there is no ramification if they don't. So it just says that they should, but or that they must. In fact, it uses the word must, but there's nothing in the Act that um, goes on to direct what happens when they don't. So we've got an inquiry into homelessness, which um, the government hasn't responded to. And, and as you can imagine, it, it is an issue that uh, the community is very interested in, is very engaged in, and the stakeholders um, uh, who took part in that very detailed and in-depth inquiry are very keen to hear what the government thinks of those recommendations. So that has been frustrating. On the, on the other side of that, I would use the example of our end of life choices inquiry that happened last term. And in that one, we had, we had quite considerable um, government engagement in the process. And, in that we actually did, um, did create some sort of drafting instructions around what assisted dying legislation might look like um, and, and what the, frame, the legislative framework might consider, uh, which is a very rare. Uh, and the response to that was within six months, the government actually uh, announced that they would introduce um, assisted dying legislation they then went, we discussed a whole range of things in that um, power of attorneys and health and other issues, and they did respond to that. And then in the case of the supervised injecting room, the committee made no recommendations. The committee made findings. Um, and as a result of that, the government then announced that they would um, introduce uh, legislation to establish a trial um, for a supervised injecting room. But that wasn't just because that wasn't just us. We also had a coroner's report making recommendations. And I think, you know, right at the moment, my head's um, very turned to the coroner's inquiry into Veronica Nelson and the recommendations that may come out of that um, 
of that inquiry. So I, you know, I think the coroner's court is also another area that does research and investigation and makes recommendations to governments that possibly, I don't know that it's increasingly, but certainly in my um, world are becoming more and more important. Well, I think anyone who's been um, aware of the Veronica Nelson coronial inquest, as, as, as you said, would be aware of all the, the issues that have emerged right. from her experience, which, uh, which would be worthy of some further work um, and investigation, mm. perhaps, and certainly some legislative change. Tony, did you want to? Yeah, I thought I just, uh, I think, should complete the picture by saying, whilst our job is finished when we give the attorney the report, our experience is that where the issues are high profile, like our sex offences report, I mean, you know, Victoria was waiting to hear what we said because yeah. there'd been publicity along the way about what we were doing. There were public papers, you know, from the commission, which mm. explained some of the things that we might be thinking about. What happened then is as soon as we delivered the report to the attorney, she held a press conference and announced immediately the adoption of three of the major recommendations about stealthing, about, um, um, about uh, affirmative consent and about, um, you know, people sitting down and talking about their issues rather than going to court. More of a restorative justice. A restorative justice, yeah. yes, thank you, thank you. So, uh, so you know, whilst we fin our job is finished, but because of our process, you might get even an immediate reaction. I mean, that report has got, you know, 100 something, 200 recommendations, and three have been picked up. But the point is that it creates a momentum. And even though it's not our momentum, it results from the work we do. Lynn, can I just quick, I just thought I'd just quickly clarify how, when the government does respond to a committee report, um, it, it responds to the recommendations of the report. It might do a slight preamble to the report itself, but it, it largely just focuses on the um, recommendations. And then it will have three different categories. So it will, it will agree in full on a recommendation and may make comments of implementation. It will agree in principle um, and it will not, it will disagree. So they, it usually, the response is quite short and sweet and comes in a, ta almost in a table format. You're both sitting at the, at the cutting edge in terms of the way in which, um, you know, we govern ourselves and the rule of law is experienced by all Victorians. So it's a really critical function. But uh, before we wrap this, and we've had some indications of what's on the slate at the moment, but let's get a quick survey of, of what's on your books. Tony, you've got the stalking uh, piece, which is nearly done, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's to be delivered in June. And also the one about uh, inclusive juries, about blind and deaf people. So those will be um, um, given to the attorney by the end of, the, of June. And hopefully um, there'll be discussion in the community about them. I, I have no doubt there will be on both fronts. I'm really interested in the juries one too. I think that's um, a really important step in terms yeah. of, of inclusivity. Fiona, what's on your books? Well, I'm fascinated by what Tony's doing, having just finished the justice inquiry and making a number of recommendations. So we'll be, it, I'll be really interested in what happens there. So we're, as I said, we're in the 
sort of in the middle of our inquiry into um, the impact of children from parental incarceration. Mm -hmm. We're just starting our extremism inquiry. There's, there's a chance this week we may get another referral, um, which I just, I don't know how my committee is going to bear it, but we're doing the, um, where there's the, the bill that is around information sharing within hospitals and within, within health facilities in Victoria. And there's some contentious elements to that sharing. So there is, um, there is a reasoned amendment that will be debated next week about referring that bill to my committee for further investigation um, around the, that, it, that the inf information sharing of people's medical records. So we've got those, those three key pieces of work. <laughs> and I, can, I can tell you, politicians are turning their head to a November election. So getting them around the table um, and getting, getting into their diaries, uh, it proves more and more challenging as the year goes on. Indeed, and, and the further the term uh, goes on as well, there's a certain appetite for maybe courageous yeah. moves at the beginning of a term, That's which right. uh, is not yeah. quite... Uh, oh, and we've now pretty much hit the cutoff where any reports we do now, the governments do, do not respond. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the political cycle is also something to factor into yeah. all of this. Yeah. But we've got one quick question before we wrap, and we are already dead on time, but I think we can work this one in. If you could wake up tomorrow and improve one aspect of the VLRC, Tony, what would you do and why? I have a hunch I know where you'd go, but tell me. Oh, there are so many. There's no one. I've just got, to, <laughs> after my trip to England and, um, and thinking about it, I've got so many ideas. I'm not going to, you know, um, pin my... my um, comments to one um, I mean we're waiting for new references to follow in after June so if I woke up in the morning and the attorney had two nice new juicy ones um, that would be that would be a lovely day for me <laughs> and, and more money uh, look we, we 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 do what we have to do um, we, our funding comes in major part from the Legal Services Board, 75% of our funding. And um, look, yes, we're of course affected by um, money issues, but um, we're gonna do the work. We're gonna do the work, whatever. Well, congratulations to you both because it is really critical work and we are uh, blessed, I think, to have you know, the, the range of organizations involved in, in constantly uh, scanning our legal environment for what needs to be done. I mean, clearly there is always much, much more demand than there will be supply. But, uh, at least there is a, a really well-established and um, I think um, very robust process in both your instances. And thank you very much indeed for joining us for this Law Week event and uh, have a lovely afternoon. Cheers. See thank you. Bye-bye. Ta-da.
Favor.